This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. On this 4th of July, I'm honored to welcome Robin Wall Kimmerer, mother, botanist, plant ecologist, writer, and distinguished teaching professor at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York, as the founding director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment, whose mission is to create programs which draw on the wisdom of both indigenous and scientific knowledge for our shared goals of sustainability, Robin is engaged in programs which introduce the benefits of traditional ecological knowledge to the scientific community in a way that respects and protects Indigenous knowledge. Many of you will be familiar with her acclaimed books, Gathering Moss, A Natural and Cultural History of Mosses, as well as Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. A gardener in the greatest sense of the word, Robin spoke with us a little earlier this spring from the studio of WAER Syracuse Public Media to explore the interrelationships between gardening and the heart of citizenship in this world. Welcome, Robin. Thanks, Jennifer. I'm delighted to be with you. I have interviewed you before in relationship to a book on contemporary women and leadership moving the world of horticulture forward. And I am, of course, a devoted reader of of your books, which have taught me and so many people a great deal about indigenous ways of knowing, traditional ecological knowledge, and the incredible power of story and metaphor that you you deploy for such beautiful and pointed purposes, Robin. And there are a lot of interviews with you about all of these things. And I, I really wanted to engage with you in this conversation as a fellow gardener and as a fellow citizen of this planet. And so I'm, I, I would love to start in a place that I don't often hear you talk about, and that is your early childhood and some of your first learning about plants, either from people or from the plants themselves, and what taught you earliest that you were a plants person at heart. Your question, Jennifer, takes me back immediately to being a little girl in the garden with my dad. Um, we always had a garden growing up. I grew up in the in the country, and uh, I remember that the the smell of of the soil, the smell of those tomato plants as we we're putting them so gently into the ground, um, are some of my earliest memories of 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 being with plants in a garden setting. But you know, truthfully, I can't name my first encounters with plants or those times when I I knew I was meant to be a plant person because it, it's so much of my of my being. I feel <laughs> like the plants were were always what uh, the 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 landscape that I that I gravitated to the the wild fields behind my house that were in what sort of post agricultural successional fields 
bordered by woods and ponds and, and wetlands. So I had a, a, a big and biodiversity-rich backyard, if you will, yeah. that uh, I, w- I just always engaged with the plants. You talk about inbraiding sweetgrass, how there is this cultivation of garden and cultivation of gratitude with open spaces from from your father, from your early childhood. But then you, you also talk a great deal about working with different spaces around you, whether it's looking for the wild strawberries or looking for the wild leeks or even the way you tend to your pond to remove the algae and save the little tadpoles from the algae as you rake it out. This all seems to me as a greater sense of gardening somehow. You're exactly right. If what we mean by gardening is to be engaged with the plant beings, engaged with the world in a means of of reciprocity, that that in return for everything that the plants give us, starting with wonder and curiosity and the fact that you cannot go outside without being surprised by something beautiful at your feet or something interesting around you, that that we are called to give back to those plants. And so it's more of like attending, I think, is how I think of, of that kind of gardening. You know, you make me also flash back to what a plant nerdy kid I had to have been because I remember taking my mom's uh, pruning shears and going out in the woods and, you know, nipping off dead branches here and there. Um, I just always had this sense that I needed to care for them in the way that um, they cared for me, in the things that they taught me and the, the happiness that they, that they brought me. So from that perspective, I do think about my work in the world and perhaps collectively our work in the world is as gardeners, as, as nurturers, as, as tenders of the abundance that's around us, not just harvesters and, and, and takers from the, from the world, but that deep satisfaction that comes from being engaged with the world in a reciprocal way. Yeah, yeah. One of the questions I wanted to ask you was, Throughout your, your work, both in gathering moss and in braiding sweetgrass and in several of your lectures that I've heard, there is this – your early childhood time in which you you were with your individual family but not yet fully reimmersed in your traditional heritage culture. And so you hadn't yet really gotten your traditional ecological knowledge or you hadn't been put in that context yet, and yet you were taught a respect for plants and open spaces. Will you describe that with your with your dad and your mom and your um, and your siblings a little bit? Certainly. And the way I like to think about that is that I was involved in cultural teachings. I just didn't know it. I didn't have the name for it yeah. um, because um, because of of history, my family was 
um, separated from our reservation in Oklahoma via the Carlisle Indian School when my grandfather was, was taken away from his family and sent to those boarding schools. And so we were separated from our, our large Potawatomi family by that tragic history. Mm-hmm. But within our family, there was the acknowledgement, the reality of the land as our teacher, as, 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 as our pharmacy, as our provider, those values that are associated with um, right relationship to the living world were very much alive in my family, very much practiced. Um, and uh, so it was only later when I became um, more connected to our uh, traditional peoples on our homelands uh, that I had language for that yeah. and, and ways to manifest that in a culturally specific way, but was was always present. You know, I tell the, the, the story often about how my dad, when we were out in the woods, um, would always do a, a, a gratitude for the day, for the world, for the beings that were around us. And um, that it, that was a a a practice that that he felt called to. Did he do it in our language? No, that language had been taken from him. Did he do it in a way that that our traditional elders would recognize? Um, in the heart of it, absolutely, um, because it was this this recognition of our interconnectedness and of gratitude for all the gifts that we receive. So it was always part of my values growing up, mm-hmm. um, but not in a, in a culturally specific way. So that actually brings me to my next question, which is related to the terrible disruption of your, and, and violence, perpetrated against not only your family, but a whole generations of Native peoples in this land. And you have a beautiful thought at some point in your mid-adulthood, early adulthood, I think, is when it occurs. And you think to yourself, if the Carlisle school could have taken that from my grandfather and taken that from all of us that came after my grandfather— If there's a school that can take that away, there must be a school that can give that back to you. And I think that, again, you use metaphor so beautifully through your work because you use an expansive sense of the word school and teacher when when you, you model for us throughout your work what schools and what teachers have brought this back to you and actually pointed you in the direction of sharing it with everyone that you possibly can. Will you walk us through some of the schools that have refueled you and your family? I'd be glad to. And I would start with my very earliest school, which was the land and continues to be the land. That is the place where I am most at home, most awed and and humbled to be in the presence of teachers 
everywhere, um, birds and plants and earth and rocks and water. Um, I really, in every sense of the world, view that as my school, um, and 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 those beings as 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 my teachers. And I think that that habit of mind um, also began on the land as as a child because I was acutely aware that I did not have cultural teachers at that time outside of my family. And the plants were very much my elders and very much my teachers. And so I, I, I start with that as my first school, as, as the intelligences other than human who surrounded me and, and taught me so much. I would say that also the schools that have been important to me Yes, let's start also with probably what was my second school, being in love with plants, being in love with the with the living world, and choosing to go to college right after, really coincident with the first Earth Day. I knew that that I needed to go study ecology, and then I needed to go study plant ecology. I needed to study botany. And so one of the very important schools for me was was entering into university plant sciences. And um, there were certain challenges for me in 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 making that transition from a from what I think of as an indigenous worldview about plants to the scientific worldview. But um Throughout that, it was, for me, my fascination with the way that plants um, achieve their incredible creativity and generosity. I wanted to know everything. So I credit part of my school as the hand lens, as the microscope, as, as indeed the test tube to try to find out, oh, I know that you plants are, are teaching us so much. Here's another way that you could teach us and that you do teach us. So the world of science was an important school for me and continues to, to be so. The very important school for me, a place of powerful learning, was within my own Potawatomi culture. And coming into the circle of knowledge holders who were generous in their sharing, who helped me understand that I was not alone on this path of longing for and wanting to know again traditional knowledge of, of the living world, who helped me understand in a historical context through our traditional teachings and through history that what had happened was a great violence against our, our traditional knowledge in that all of us, whether we grew up in our traditional territories or we grew up like I did away from them, we were all in the process of a great remembering and bringing that knowledge back among our people. The knowledge hadn't gone anywhere. The land remembered. Fortunately, many of our people and our songs and our teaching remembered as, as, as well. But that collective remembering to which I was invited um, was perhaps one of the most meaningful schools 
for me, a school where I could listen to knowledge holders and walk through the woods with medicine gatherers and um, begin the process of trying to learn a little bit of our language. All of that was, was a very powerful school for me and, and, and continues to be. I am the most beginning of students in my own culture. If you're just joining us, I'm Jennifer Jewell, and on this 4th of July, Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass and Happy Citizen of Maple Nation, is speaking with us about gardening and our longing to belong. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. Hey, so I cannot think of a better person to have speak with us on this 4th of July than Robin Wall Kimmerer, to share her worldview and understanding of our rights and responsibilities as citizens and gardeners of this world. These are inspiring and igniting for me. Later in the conversation, you will hear her state her strong belief that one of our responsibilities as gardeners is that of sharing the gifts and the knowledge that the garden offers to us with as many others as we can in the ways that we are called to do. As Cultivating Place has grown, as we have shared, amplified, and reflected on the importance of gardening and an expansive view of gardening, it has been our incredibly great honor to be shared by you. So thank you for that. Thank you for telling others about the program. Thank you for your engagement and focus here with me. Thank you for your follows, your likes, your comments in our Instagram and Facebook communities. Thank you as well for your personal messages and emails. There are days when they make all the difference to keeping me and this team going. Maybe especially in the height of summer, more than ever, the garden itself is shared by the larger other-than-gardener world as a location for things like barbecues and badminton for rest and recreation. And the garden certainly offers us those gifts too. But make no mistake, we know our gardens and our gardening impulse are much bigger than just that. We can and we do level up and contribute to social, environmental, and cultural justice, to improving and rethinking our larger cultural values and literacy. So from this Gardener Citizen to each of you, thank you. I can't imagine a better group of beings with whom to change the world. Now, back to our conversation with Robin Wall Kimmerer on what it means to be a citizen of this world on this 4th of July. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. When we ended our last part of this conversation with Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer, botanist, ecologist, indigenous plant knowledge advocate, and author, she was sharing with us some of her most formative teachers and classrooms in this plant world. We return now with her sharing about an experience in which her own ways of learning and knowing made an important breakthrough. 
it was just after actually I'd gotten my PhD and was, you know, that point at which the Western world says to you, oh, you really know something. Right. Um, (laughs) And I began to teach botany. And I am ashamed of myself to say that. How did I begin teaching it? I taught it in just the mechanistic reductionist way that I had been taught. That's not really the way I learned as a young person, but it was the way I learned in the university. And so I began to replicate that. And I still do not know where and how this invitation came to me, but I was invited to come to this gathering of of traditional plant knowledge holders. And um, I was allowed to sit in the back uh, quietly. We are not allowed to have a, a pencil even with us just to listen, to engage in that really deep listening, that, that traditional way of, of, of sharing knowledge. And for four days, I sat quietly and listened as, as elders and culture bearers told plant stories. And I was simply um, overwhelmed and humbled by the depth of their knowledge. I wouldn't say that I came to a place to think that they that scientific and traditional knowledge were equal. No, no, no. In fact, what I came to understand is that traditional knowledge of plants was so much bigger and so much richer than, than the scientific worldview allowed because it brought in not only that which we can observe, empirical, scientific, so-called scientific um, knowledge, but it also brought in history and story and and spiritual teachings and it brought in mind body emotion and spirit and so i began to understand that this was a much bigger and powerful way of knowing that creates a different framework for living in the world it's not just about information and data it's about wisdom uh. And this really pivotal shift in worldview that you you also go on to describe as you're you're learning the language, you're starting to learn the language, and there's this just really beautiful moment, electric as you describe it, where you're trying to understand the language and you're so frustrated because you are so fully contained by how the English language is structured that you can't get outside of that to grasp your traditional language. And you are, you describe it as being ready to give up. And then you describe like this vision that the the colonizers who stole your language are being pleased in their places of terribleness. And you have this electric shift. Will you describe that shift I will. <laughs> it's so it's so sharp in my memory of being frustrated because to learn Potawatomi language, as I was trying to do, um, the, the verbs are very, very difficult to conjugate. And 70% of the words in our language are verbs, as opposed to 70% in English, which are nouns, which are about things, which are about objects, right? Um, and so... I was struggling with this, with this, these, these verbs, um, not only in their great diversity and specificity, but in the fact that they are 
animate. We have cases in our language which are animate and inanimate. When we speak of the living world, we use the same grammar and, and verb conjugations that we use for one another. Um, we speak of the living world with different grammar than we do with the manufactured world or the inanimate world. And, and for me, as I was struggling with this and, and trying to think about this, for me, it all comes down to this one word, uh, the word wikwikama, which meant a verb to be a bay. And I thought, well, that's crazy. That's not a verb. And until, of course, this, for me, this literally electric moment was, well, of course it's a verb because water is alive, because the ducks on the water are alive, because the, the fish are alive, because I am alive, because the world is alive. And suddenly the complexity of our language fell into place in this beautiful scaffolding of animacy, that it all made sense to me because it held the worldview that the world is alive and that we speak of, of, of a world made of beings, not a, wor a world made of objects. And so for me, that 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 great realization was for me a remembering of how the, the Western scientific way of thinking in particular, which renders beings as objects in the ecosystem, um, um, carried with it so many assumptions about the world that I wanted to be, not only that I wanted to be free of, but I could see how if collectively as a society, if we could free ourselves from the necessary, necessary linguistically, I mean, um, objectification of the world, we would live in a very different world. And that's the world I want to live in. That's the world I want to live in with you, Robin. And this moment I have to share with you, when I first read Braiding Sweetgrass, it was in the spring and I live in Northern California. And so the word bay to me automatically was a, was a tree, was a big tree that was in bloom and very fragrant and very medicinal. The, the leaves are powerful and they line our riparian corridors here. So while I was reading this about to be a bay, I'm seeing a big plant. And then I get to the part where you're saying, and the water is alive and the water is lapping against the, the stones in conversation. And I all of a sudden realized that you're talking about a water bay and I'm talking about a plant bay, but I still got there with you. So it was also another moment, epiphany for me when you are describing, um, and I can't remember if it's before the grammar of animacy or after the grammar of animacy that you've just described to us, but you you begin you begin to lay out for us metaphorically through through these these lessons that you take on in your relationship with the the plants and the world around you the idea of of gratitude and an economy a gift economy and this idea of reciprocal relationship between us and the world around us and you are talking about beans. And it is in the garden that you have this kind of epiphany of the world does love me and need me to love it. 
I am not just a terrible species on this planet, although it's sometimes hard to remember that. Um, and you talk about it loving us in beans. Will you, will you walk us through that? I will. I think that probably most gardeners have had that moment of filling your basket. You know, when you go into the garden and and um, there's so many gifts there for you. Um, and I just remember all of these big hands of beans hanging from the from the pole beans and and thinking oh my gosh you know my my basket is is overflowing and look over there there's the tomatoes and over there those beets that I haven't pulled yet the this sense of overwhelming abundance mm-hmm. and I, and I thought to myself well what does what does this all mean all of this abundance that is is waiting there for me and it felt to me like love, like, well, of course we provide for you. Of course we provide for you. All that you need is here in, in the world. And, and that sense of, of gift from the plants. And it's important to me that my thinking about that happened in a garden that in which I was a participant in that abundance. I sometimes feel that when I'm out picking wild berries or, you know, gathering hickory nuts too, like, oh, all of this abundance. But in the garden, I thought, well, I tended those seeds. I planted those seeds and in reciprocity for that act, look what they're giving me. And I, and I started to think about this in the same framework that I think about, well, how is it that I show my children how much I love them? By feeding them, by caring for them, by bringing them beauty, by teaching them, by asking them to participate, right? The, the lessons of picking those potato bugs, you know, you have, you have to participate in this, this gift. And that recognition that, that we can talk about our gardens, be it a cultivated vegetable garden or the, the garden of the, of, of the earth as being a, a maternal relationship. Um, there's, there's a reason we call her mother earth mm-hmm. because she behaves toward us as, as a mother does, with, with love and with lessons. Robin Wall Kimmerer is a highly acclaimed botanist, ecologist, and professor. She is also a gardener. We'll be right back after a break with more of our conversation with Robin. Stay with us. So I'll keep it really simple by pulling out a phrase by Robin, one that she likes to use herself in relation to her gardening practice, and that is this. We as gardeners should not only be raising a garden, we should be raising a ruckus, a ruckus on behalf of all that the world needs and all that we have to offer as gardeners. So here's my challenge to myself and to you if such a challenge resonates. And that is to set a goal of expanding how and for what causes I share out my gardening love even more, 
maybe even a little differently? Will I plant a row for the local soup kitchen? Will I save seeds to share at the local seed swap? Will I write letters to the editors of local and national papers or online news sources about gardening? Will I help to plant gardens in my community? Will I paint or write poetry inspired by the garden or natural world and share that forward? Will I join a volunteer crew to clean up a creek or clean up a trail? I'm not sure yet, but that's the challenge, to take the gifts my garden brings to me and to share them out more widely in one more even small way. I hope to see you out there doing the same. Now, back to our conversation with Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass and Gathering Moss, citizen of this abundant planet. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. When we left off in our conversation with Robin, she was sharing her garden moment revelation that the earth loved and cared for her just as she loved and cared for her own children, and that it was more importantly a reciprocal relationship. I've gone on to ask her about the larger concept of what it is to be a gardener and if there is such a word as gardener or gardening in her native language of Potawatomi. The Anishinaabe peoples are collectively, we are a confederacy of what we call the Three Fires Confederacy. So Potawatomi, Odawa, and the Ojibwe people are all Anishinaabe peoples. Um, and so Potawatomi is an Anishinaabe language. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. In that language, is there a word similar to garden or gardener or gardening? The the word that that I know for that, and there probably are many, many words associated mm-hmm. with it, is gitagan. And... I understand that when you take that word apart, it basically refers to the fact that these are plants that we put here. Mm, Okay. As distinct from the plants which are, well, I want to say sovereign beings who decided Mm -hmm. where they were going to grow. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I like that, that framing because to me what that means is that the that most plants decide where they're going to grow. Um, But there is a certain subset of plants that we take to a certain spot. Um, Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which kind of gets us to the garden with a little G and garden with a big G. The important identity that we bring to these words is directly related to our creation stories. Will you walk us through that a little bit? Yes, um, the big G garden story in a way in the in the Abrahamic traditions, right, of Eve yes. in the garden, Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden is, of course, this notion that, that the world is rich and full of, of plant life and, and animal life. All that we need is provided for us. But, of course, Adam and Eve, by partaking, are actually exiled from the garden 
right? And so it's a, it's a story of you do not belong here. And the way that you will eat is not by um, taking the gifts, accepting the gifts that are offered to you, but you're going to have to work for this from now on. Um, and um, that's so different than the role of um, the first woman in the creation story, both of Anishinaabe peoples and, interestingly, of, of Haudenosaunee people among where I live today in, in their ancestral territories. That's the Sky Woman story. In the Sky Woman story, the first woman, Gij Kokwe, is actually a co-creator of abundance. She's a co-creator because she's the one who brought the seeds. She's the one who, by her dance, took the earth that the animals had given her, and with her gratitude and her, her creativity, um, helped that, that little handful of earth to grow into the soils and the earth that we have today, onto which she planted seeds um, that she'd brought with her from the sky world. So in one story, we have people being exiled from abundance. And in the other story, we have a profound act of reciprocity between people and the living world. And therefore, we have instructions to live in reciprocity, to be grateful for the gifts that have been given us, and that for those gifts to multiply and to care for us uh, into the future, we have to care for them, and that we each have a, a role to play in this co-creative process. And in that way, for me, the whole world becomes a garden. It becomes yeah. a place where I think of a garden, that big garden, as the place where we enact our reciprocity in return for the gift of being alive, that this is who we are. We are beings who are linked in reciprocity with, with the living world. Yeah. It has such profound consequences for our environment, for women, for the nature and look of love. It's incredibly thought-provoking. Yes. Yeah. And can reframe the way that we think of ourselves as in the way that we belong to the land. I think that is our deepest longing, is to belong to each other and to belong to this larger community of life. And for me, this notion of tending the garden at all the scales we've been implying here is a powerful way to belong. Yeah. And that that brings me to this notion of citizenship and what it means to belong, both what we can expect from it and what should be expected of us as a result of belonging. And your lecture presentation at the Oregon Humanities Center all around the concept of we the people was so powerful. And it it came after the debacle, um, which was powerful and I'll just say that, powerful. I'm not sure where else to—there's so much we could go into there of the the Standing Rock 
crisis in in our country. Will you walk us through some of your thoughts as to what citizenship should be? You are a a member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation. You often refer to yourself as a citizen of Maple Nation. Give us your your thoughts on citizenship, Robin. It's so interesting, Jennifer, that you chose those two uses of the word citizen. Mm. Let me say that our citizen Potawatomi nation are so named because after having been removed from our Great Lakes homelands multiple times, eventually to Kansas, where we continued to hold our lands in common, despite the fact that this was a brand new homeland for us, that many of our people were marched away from our Great Lake homelands at, at, at gunpoint to this new homeland. Nonetheless, this notion of, of, of communal ownership of land, the refusal to see land as private property um, was strong until continued assaults of, of, of history, shall we say, briefly, um, led to a schism within our people. And some people said, well, these newcomers, this, the, this American society, the only thing that they really um, uh, value, that they really would be a protection, is this notion of citizenship, that there were certain rights that came with citizenship, including the fact that your property could not be taken from you if you were a citizen. And so some of our people accepted this offer to go to Indian Territory, what became Oklahoma, um, in, and, and to actually hold private property, which was so counter to our, our traditional thinking, but it was viewed as a survival strategy to say these people, these colonizers, the only thing that will protect you is citizenship and private property. And so in order to survive, that's what we'll do. Their lands were taken from them anyway. So that's the story of citizenship, of accepting citizenship, because it was thought to come with certain rights. Um, And as it turns out, those rights were not applied to our people. The way that I mean that word citizen, when I happily call myself a citizen of Maple Nation, is to live in a culture which isn't about the rights that come with citizenship, but the responsibilities that come with citizenship. That when, I mean, right now here in upstate New York, it's almost sugar time. It's almost maple time. And um, really, our leading citizens here are maples. They far outnumber human beings. And in terms of their impact on this landscape, they far outnumber humans as well um, in beautiful maple forests, in the local economies that are associated with sugaring, with the firewood that at this moment is warming my house, um, with, with, you know, sequestering carbon, with making oxygen, with shading us, all of those things. I think of the, that the maples bear such responsibility for this entire landscape. So I think of them as our leading citizens. And then I, as a human citizen here, have to say, well, 
um, if the, the maples are leading the way of showing us what it means to contribute to your society, to be responsible for the place that you live. And, um, and so that's why I cast myself as a, as a citizen of, of Maple Nation. It's, again, learning from those plant teachers of, of what, it, what it is to be a citizen, not, not to simply claim rights, but to uh, claim responsibility. Yeah. And those responsibilities are, are, are many and great, and more of us are, I hope, every day being called to, um, to live up to them. One of the ways that you address people's questions to you about how to be the, the most active, proactive citizens of our planet, you, you say to people, Look to gratitude and look to your gifts and make a real connection to your own place. And, and from those sort of three things, you will know how best to act in this world to make it a better place. And this, I think you, you suggest to us, is among our responsibilities to have relationship to our places, to, to listen to them and to find our gifts and what we are most grateful for, and act from there, lead from there. And in Gathering Moss, you make this really beautiful point that you do not have to be big to be successful, and you do not have to be flamboyant or, or enormous to make an, a powerful impact. And in Gathering Moss, you have said to me before, you, you really came to find one of your powerful gifts in writing and um, in the use of of metaphor. Will you will you talk about this revelation to you and and this gift that you work to bring to the world? Writing Gathering Moss for me was a, a watershed moment in that most of the writing I had done as an adult was was technical, peer-reviewed <laughs> scientific literature, right? Um, <laughs> and um, there's a certain kind of poetry in doing that. And I love doing botanical research. I really do. Um, but I also felt deeply dissatisfied that my lifelong relationship with plants would be boiled down to some tables and figures and statistics about what mosses do and don't do. And I felt as if in return for the gifts that mosses had given me throughout my life, that I was doing a disservice to them by by reducing them. I was going to say by allowing them to be reduced. No, no, I was doing it mm. <laughs> as part of my professional discourse. And so I wanted to tell their stories. I wanted to, to, to share what I had learned from mosses, not what I had learned about mosses and to, right. and, and to really um, uh, illuminate their wisdom. And, and so at first it was really difficult to do because the, the little scientific editor that was sitting on my shoulder kept saying, you can't say that. Um, and the pop, the process of reclaiming my own voice to say, yes, I not only can say that, I need to say that, that, that this will be a much more powerful message than, than my uh, statistics about moss reproduction. And 
so it, it was a, a challenge, but I also found it um, to be an exercise in love. My love for the, for the mosses and for the, the experiences that I had with them um, just became so uh, alive and present to me as a force in the world, not just an emotion, but an, a force in the world that I began thinking, if I could get people to fall in love with mosses, these little tiny beings that everybody walks by and they don't even know what they are, if I could get someone to fall in love with mosses then imagine the possibilities if people could fall in love with the whole world and that really was my goal and the the way that gathering moss was received no one was more surprised than I Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. to to know that that experiment and could you get people to love mosses the answer is yes we already do we just needed a frame for it we needed language for it we needed stories to 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 magnify it Um, and so that's when I came to understand the 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 power of of storytelling and the necessity of storytelling if we were to reweave our relationship with the world as a as a practicing scientist i too was so caught up in the well if we only had more information about um the living world then surely people would behave differently um well, that didn't turn out to be true, did it? Um, you know, we have lots of information mm-hmm. about the way the world is, but what we need is a change of heart. And I think that stories are particularly brilliant in transforming the reader. And and so that is the the path that I've chosen for for this phase of my life is is to is to try to tell those stories. You know, I keep coming back to the garden and the gardener because that is my level of deepest connection in the world. And when you talk about this great hunger in our in our world, I see the garden and gardening at its best, at its least harmful, at its most integrated and whole as a just a wonderful access point for so many people to connect to that hunger and longing for belonging that you you referenced earlier and as a way to create this connection from which then decision-making and values get reframed for us. And I wonder if as a traditional ecologist, as a scientist, as a storyteller, as a, a plants person, Are there things that you would say to gardeners for how to keep making a difference as citizen gardeners in this world? What would those be, Robin? What an important charge. And I think that one of the things I would want to say about that has to do with sharing from the garden, just as the plants have shared with us that it's our responsibility to share what the plants are are giving us. And that might be physical and might be even I mean it more than more than the beans, right? Sharing the beans, but but sharing the connection to the living world, 
sharing the the satisfaction of having your hands in in the earth. Um, but the other thing that I want to say, Jennifer, uh, uh, particularly related to your notion of of the gardens that we tend perhaps in our backyards and the bigger garden, is that I think our responsibilities as gardeners, the things that have we have learned from our gardens and from the act of gardening, is that individual action really makes a difference, right? And we are the ones who are planting those seeds, saving those seeds, creating a, a pollinator habitat, for example, on a small scale. But I think the other thing that gardeners can do in particular is to expand the scale of what we consider to be our garden, because it is deeply satisfying, let's say, to to plant a, a native pollinator garden in your backyard. Does it do good? You bet it does. But at the same time that individually we are tending that small garden, if we have federal policy that enable the spraying of bee-killing pesticides over public land, let's say, while we're tending our little square feet of native garden, we need to think bigger. We need to not only embrace our individual action, but to claim our power in the collective, um, to really be a voice for that bigger garden. The, the phrase that I like to use is, were we gardeners? We need to raise a garden, but we also need to raise a ruckus. Um, we really need to be advocates and spokespeople for those beings who we love in the world. And, um, and that in a time of the age of the sixth extinction, in a time of impending climate chaos, we can't just tend our little our little garden. We have to tend the big garden too. And, and this comes from a change in heart. It comes from a change internally in the ways that we've been talking about, but it also demands systemic change. And um, for I, I think that if we act out of the love that we have for the world at a collective level, um, we will be really fulfilling our responsibilities as citizens of that big garden. Thank you so much for being a guest today. It has been an honor to speak with you. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Thank you for all you do. Dr. Robin Wallkimmerer is a mother, botanist, plant ecologist, writer, and SUNY Distinguished Teaching Professor at the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse, New York. As the founding director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment, whose mission it is to create programs which draw on the wisdom of both indigenous and scientific knowledge for our shared goals of sustainability, Robin is engaged in programs which introduce the benefits of a traditional ecological knowledge to the scientific community in a way that respects and protects indigenous knowledge. Robin's work and heart in her books Gathering Moss and Braiding Sweetgrass, as in all that she does as a mother, professor, and citizen, are eloquent restoring, reframing of a compassionate, respectful, responsible, and reciprocal relationship to our greater-than-human world and its many creatures and beings. 
Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from Robin Wall Kimmerer's work and books, see this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. The Cultivating Place team now includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and executive producer Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.